expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome, fellow nerds, to episode 155 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, where March Madness for nerds usually means SDCC badges and another crazy announcement from New York Comic Con. Or it's going to be the whole plethora of movies that come out this month. I mean, you know, we've already had Kong Skull Island, we've had Logan, Power Rangers is out right now, it just came out, and then we have Ghost in the Shell next week. I mean, that's March Madness in and of itself. I mean, but it never used to be that way, though. That's the funny thing is that, you know, we get a movie here and there in March, and that now all of a sudden, all the, I mean, throw Beauty and the Beast in there as well if you want. I mean, oh, that's, yeah. that's just the entire month of March every week has been blockbusters, really. It used to be, I believe, what was it, last year's Dawn of Justice came out in March? and yep. uh, on my birthday last year. Yeah, and that was like the only movie that came out in March because studios didn't want to compete with that. Now you're seeing studios like, fuck you, Beauty and the Beast. I'm going to put my shit out right now. You know, like, right, exactly. They, it's just everybody throwing their shit on the table of like, you know, and their, and their chips are going all in. Like, we're like, we don't care if we're going to be number one this week or we're not going to be number one this week when we debut. We're all in, you know, like, it's just, it's insane. And especially because I think the biggest thing is you just mentioned Beauty and the Beast. You know, this thing. Speaking of Batman vs. Superman, it had a bigger opening than yep. Batman vs. Superman. Yep. So for st- other studios to just go out with stuff and just say, yeah, we don't care that a Disney movie's out. We're going to put our stuff out there anyways the week before or the week after it. It speaks a lot of volumes. And quite frankly, it's March. Let's be honest with ourselves here. There's less shit to do in March, okay? Quite frankly, I mean, it's not summertime. People aren't going on vacations and doing stuff with their friends and their family on the weekends in March. They're doing it in in the summertime. Well, I mean, you know, spring just started, so you have people planting their stuff or getting ready to do, you know, if you own a home, you're getting ready to plant your lawns. Yeah, you're not ready to, you're not like, hey, we're going to go to the beach or we're going to go do this. She's like, nah, I mean, unless unless you live in, unless, of course, you live in, like, California or Florida or, you know, a, a, a really warm state, you're not going to go do a lot of shit outside, really. Unless you're, one of your kids decides to play Super Mario 2 and start ripping shit out of the ground. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Can you imagine, like, your wife's planting turnips or you're planting turnips and all of a sudden your son just comes along and just pulls it out and just throws it at you like Super Mario? Could you imagine even doing that at all, just ripping a radish out of the ground and throwing it at someone? <laughs> <laughs> what do birth- you do if somebody whips oh, a radish at you? Oh, but you know, if you did that, the, the video would go viral. If you dressed him up like in a Mario costume and you just had like pull up vegetables <laughs> and chuck them at you, and like you and your wife, like it would go viral. I'm doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm the Merkin One Arm Nick Pataglia alongside, as always. I'm James with him, and, and man, there's just. So much going on, and I mean, next week we've got something really big, Ghost in the Shell. We'll talk about that closer towards the end of the show. But of course, you know, we're going to be reviewing Iron Fist a lot. Yeah, a lot of Iron Fist, because I decided, you know what, I'm going to be reviewing the comic that came out from Marvel this week to kind of tie in with our review of the Netflix show, which came out recently, which we're going to do in Geek Tainment. And speaking of those things, coming up next, we are going to dive into some comics, as what we're reading is coming your way. 
Hi, I'm Brian Ruckley, the writer of IDW's Highlander, The American Dream, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And it's that time, boys and girls, where we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, as I teased in the intro of this week's show, I said, you know what? Iron Fist, the show, came out this week. And also, Marvel's come out with a new Iron Fist comic series. So let me read the comic series and see what that's all about. Of course, it's written by Ed Brisson. And Mike Perkins is the artist. Andy Troy is the color artist on this. And VC's Travis Lanham is the letterer. And what this series deals with is Kunlun has been destroyed. And because of that destruction, Danny Rand cannot tap into the chi that he needs to use the Iron Fist. So basically he's losing his powers as the Iron Fist. And so this book, this first issue, goes through his kind of – I'm putting some quotations. Trials where he's pretty much talking about how like – it's like one of those things where it's a problem, but it's not really a problem. It's like, I'm beating everybody. It's literally, I'm beating everybody's ass, and I cannot find a formidable opponent. What am I if I'm not the Iron Fist and can't, you know, be challenged and stuff like that? Kind of a good problem to have, I'd say. <laughs> right. So I'm kind of like reading this. I'm like, well, how is this really a problem? And then, of course, you find out, and I will say this. The only way you will find out why and how he's losing his Iron Fist power Literally in the credits page at the beginning of the book, there is in the top right corner, top left corner, above where it says Iron Fist, it has a little paragraph detailing what's going on. Interesting. So if you don't read that, and I missed it because I'm like, okay, let me go through. Okay, here's the you know creative team, and I go right into the book, and I'm like literally halfway to the book when he's talking about him losing his power. I'm like, wait a minute, there's no place in this book where they mention him losing his power how he's losing it until now so if you bypass reading that that tiny paragraph in the in, in the credits page you're not going to understand why this is happening and, and skipping through that's not uncommon by the no, way it's, so. not. <laughs> it's, it's really not well because the thing is it's kind of like when you pick up a book that doesn't have any pictures in it and it's like you know a lot of people skip the prologue people just oh, go right that first chapter so, really, you're skipping the prologue. I do that in a lot of comics. You know, it's because it's like I, for the most part, know from a synopsis what the book is about. Right. And I will say this. As he's going on his quote-unquote, you know, troubles, this is a Danny Rand that I like. He he is the very bravado-ish, I'm, you know, king shit thing. I mean, he dude, there's the first... A couple of pages he literally walks into this fight like you know underground fighting arena and says like i want to fight all your guys and he fights all these guys because yes. he's and it's more and it's like and I, mean, I mean he's very brash i mean there's parts where he's talking about how he's like i let guys beat the shit out of me just so i feel like there's a challenge like this is a guy who is who knows he's king shit who knows he's a great fighter but his problem really isn't really a problem. That's kind of an issue with me because it's like, well, that's not really much of a problem. I mean, yeah, he's losing his power, but you know what I'm saying? Like, It's like, like I'm, saying I'm, I've run out of ways to spend my money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when you're right. rich. <laughs> right. And so it's kind of like – and the thing is he never uses the Iron Fist when he's fighting these group of guys. So it's like, well, wait a minute. If you can beat the shit out of these guys without having used the Iron Fist – why What's is the losing problem? It a, yeah, exactly. Why is losing it a problem in the first place? And I will say this: at the end of the book, it has that very 
uh, kung fu movie vibe where you know he's going to travel somewhere and find out answers as to why Kun Lun was destroyed or what you know just find answers to his questions about his fading abilities. And the art in this is gorgeous. Mike Perkins does a great job of the de- putting great detail in this. Andy Troy's colors. Phenomenal job. Like, this is really, I mean, when you want to talk about realistic, like, this is really realistic looking. There are certain shades, like, certain lightings that make it look less detailed, but when there's, like, in darker rooms or when it's just a close-up of Danny Rand and he's, you know, showing him in his Iron Fist garb, it's really gorgeous. Like, you can see, okay, you know how, like, when you wear, like, a bandana or, like, a do-rag or something like that and you have kind of, like, the stretch, you see the stretching of the material? Totally, yeah. You see the stretching of the material and the mask. Like, nice. it's it's really detailed. It's really gorgeous. In the parts where they do show him having the Iron Fist, which is more in the credits page, it looks really badass. I'm not going to lie. It looks better than it does in the Netflix show. So, overall, this didn't blow me away, but I am intrigued because this is a Danny Rand uh, we're going to get to it in the and when we review the show. That's not like the Danny Rand in the show. It's a better version. It is uh, someone who is very, again, very brash. He kind of has that whole, yes, I, you know, I am Danny Rand. You know, he pretty much walks into a room just like, can you dig it? You know, like, <laughs> you know, he has that 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 aura when he walks to a room. It's just like, dude, this guy's either he's crazy or he's just insanely talented as a fighter you know or both i mean and, and there are things that brisson does in his writing that really does grab you as a as a reader overall i i think that this is not a pull but it's a pickup uh simply because again i want his problem to be more than just i'm losing my power like if he like if he later on in the book for some odd reason the iron fist is the reason why he's able to be a good martial artist as well or whatever or you know what i'm saying like there's more to him just losing the iron fist and just not having the iron fist but he's still able to beat the shit out of people that's gonna be interesting and it's gonna be interesting to see what other problems they can give a guy like danny rand in this so you're basically one decent explanation away from this being a pull it seems like pretty much because again i'm i'm more than just one decent explanation i'm more i'm more like one unique struggle away from this being a pull okay so it's like give me a reason and then we're good <laughs> well yeah like like my thing is like not don't just have it like i don't want this series to just be about him losing his power if it's just him losing his power then you've lost me been there done that yeah right but if it's him if it's him losing his power in the meantime dealing with another major issue then yeah that's that you you got me there i got you i got you so what'd you do this week, buddy? Well, I decided to travel back in time once again, as they do so well at Dynamite, and go back to June of 1938 with Doc Savage and the new arc that they have going on with him called The Ring of Fire, which is written by David Avalone. Dave Acosta does the art, Morgan Hickman does the colors, and Taylor Esposito does the letters. And I'll just say right off the bat, and I just come to expect this from Doc Savage books now, the art is freaking gorgeous just like you were saying about iron fist the art is just so amazing the colors by hickman as well just jump off and and the reason that that's kind of important is because we're dealing with a volcano here that's one of the parts of the whole ring of fire storyline it's basically and and this isn't really a spoiler it's basically a volcano that just kind of pops up out of nowhere and erupts so i won't tell you the the i will not spoil what happens and exactly 
why this involves Doc Savage, because there's actually two different versions of it. One of them involved his, his cousin Patricia, by the way. So that's that's a little part of a uh, little part of the story. But he's actually called to investigate something by the president. That's kind of a big deal. So what's funny is, though, is a lot of this issue deals around two things. First is him kind of getting his boys together, you know, getting his group together, saying what they're going to do, where they're going to go, how they're going to execute the plan and stuff like that. That's what a lot of this book is. The second part of this book deals around, I mean, we're talking about the Pacific Ocean in the in the late 1930s, if you know your American history, that should tell you that we're talking about Amelia Earhart. So Amelia Earhart looks like she might actually be a part of this story. Well, one of the things I like that Dynamite does in their books is, and this mostly happens in books where you know, like Doc Savage, Shadow, and, and the Avenger, where they bring in these classic real people like Amelia Earhart and just, you know, Houdini and other people. And you're like, oh, they do it in a really, really good way. So how do they treat her in this? They actually treat her very, it's hard to say because, ah, it's going to be hard to say without, without spoiling it as far as Amelia Earhart's concerned. So I'll just say that they treat her much like in very, in other Doc Savage stories in a very unconventional way. Okay. <laughs> that's that's the best way I can put it without actually spoiling what's going on here. But I mean just again, like just like any other Doc Savage book, there's there's some action sequences in here. There's actually towards the end, there's a pretty neat action sequence when they're actually traveling to the Pacific Ocean uh to figure out what's going on here. And while I like the story, there is a couple problems with this. Uh my first one being they spend a little bit too much time on why they're going where they're going and and normally that wouldn't be a good that would be a good thing but at the same time it's like there, there's way too many pages of him talking to the president and getting the details i feel like that could have been been done faster and i understand that they're trying to create the the group dynamic between doc savage and his guys and you know how some of them don't get along and you know how they poke at each other and stuff like that but it seemed like there were too many pages devoted to that and not forwarding the story you know what i mean yeah, so there's pretty much a lot of pages of, like, infighting and just joking around. Really, it's kind of like, okay, guys, we get it. You know, you, you like to joke on another. You like to fuck with one another. Like, get to the story. Make it go faster. Come on. You right, know, exactly. I, I, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of like, basically, you're, you're, you're just sitting in the room. You're watching a movie, and it's just talking, talking, talking. You're like, okay, well, when does the ship explode? You know, right. like. <laughs> right, exactly. And, I mean, there there is something called, and, and, again, this is in this is literally the title of the first chapter. It's called Firebird. That matters in the story, and they, but they only make it matter at the very beginning and the very end. And that's all I, c- I can really tell you. And you don't get too much information on what Firebird actually is, which I guess is a good thing because this is the first issue. You don't want to reel too much, but it seems like you dragged certain areas where I feel like you didn't have to drag, and then in other respects, you kind of push stuff off to the side too quickly. I mean, there was literally a page and a half where they were talking about, and I know it's 1938, where they kind of talked about how cool it was that that it, they were like Skyping in nineteen in the 1930s, right? It's like, you can see me and I can see you. How great is this? You know, telecommunication systems in the 1930s. But I mean, I feel like you spent, well, maybe not a page and a half, maybe I'm exaggerating, but it was way too long of how cool is this kind of thing, you know? It's like, okay, we get it. That's like a couple of little panels and then move on. I just felt like 
And it doesn't need to be action, action, action either, but I just felt like in other Doc Savage stories, they kind of got to the point faster, so I expected that, I guess. So pretty much, this is just a story where it, it had some interesting moments, but from what you're just saying, it seems like they just spent way too much time dragging their feet along. Yeah, and I mean, I like the premise, uh, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book, and, and do I want to know what's going on here? Yeah, I want to know what's going on, and I like Doc Savage, I think the story's fine. I just wish they would have focused more on the story and give me maybe give me something else maybe tell me a little you know give me a little hint about what's going on in the pacific and what the deals with this volcano in the first issue instead of dragging other things along so i mean for that reason i mean it's a pickup for me it's absolutely not a drop and it's absolutely not a pull but it's definitely a solid pickup it's something where it's a four issue series so the three issue rule doesn't really apply here because i'd be almost done and why not finish it so by the next issue, I'm going to expect some sort of reveal or some sort of forwarding of the story because if they drag their feet in issue two, I'm probably going to be off this. So it just looks like pretty much the books we reviewed this week are like one or two things away from them being really, really good. It really is, and and that's the thing. It's it's a good story, and, and Doc Savage is a character. It seems like in every comic he's in has been really good, and the stories that they choose and the elements that they choose of danger are great, but... Focus on that more, you know what I mean? Exactly. That's going to do it for Reem. Coming up next, we're going to learn the way of the Iron Fist again because guess what? Our full spoiler-filled review of Netflix's Iron Fist is coming up next. Hey, listeners. This is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, the final Defender is finally here, so it's time to travel to Kunlun and then all the way back to New York City as we review the full season, spoiler-filled, of Netflix and Marvel's Iron Fist. And Nick, uh, let's just say there was a whole lot going on here, and not all of it was necessarily good. No, and of course, for people who... <laughs> I know I just reviewed the comic, for, for, for people... Who are new to Iron Fist, of course, covers the story of Danny Rand, whose parents die in the plane crash. He ends up, you know, surviving the crash in the Himalayas and is taken by monks in this mysterious land called Kunlun, which appears once for a brief time every 15 years. The doorway opens to it. So he's, of course, trained. He gets awarded and earned the honor of being the Iron Fist, which is pretty much a long list of defenders for Kun Lun and, and, and defends the territories. And, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in here, but none of it really stood out to me. And I think that the reason why that is is because when you look at it, and you can compare this to past Netflix shows because it's, all the same, because it's all the same universe. When you look at every Netflix show, I'm going to go in order. Daredevil was a blind man, you know, handicapped man who fought for the little guy, and his pivotal scenes from last season alone were the scenes where Punisher was in the jail, he was fighting that, you know, hallway of guys, also the graveyard scene as well between Daredevil and Punisher, and you also had him take a dent at the hand in defeating Nobu. Yep. Jessica Jones was about a woman who was sexually assaulted, and it was about her getting her life back and kind of overcoming that assault and just, you know, fighting through that and progressing through that. And again, she gets killed grave in the end. And so it's really a victory for women. And you identify, you can easily identify with her struggle. Right. And what he made her do too. Let's not right. forget about that. Right. Then you have Luke Cage, a black man from Harlem 
who is focused on keeping it safe from really what is political corruption. And what does he do? He exposes Black Mariah and everything that's happened within Harlem, even though he does get taken away at the end. But there's a scene in Luke Cage that's pretty much the same scene in Iron Fist. Oh, and it's yeah. ten times better. And you know what I'm talking about, dude. Mm-hmm. It's in Luke Cage, there's a scene. And this is a spoiler, even though Luke Cage's been out for like six months. Yeah, and we said spoiler-filled anyway, so just right. be ready for that. Right. But Black Mariah is being confronted by Cottonmouth in the club. And she pretty much kills him. And that makes her really transform into this fully evil, corrupt person. Yep. Uh, Iron Fist, it's Ward Meacham killing his father, Harold Meacham, who sees Ward as just not worthy of the Meacham name, pretty much. And the problem with that is, unlike Luke Cage, where you did not see this confrontation between Mariah and Cottonmouth happening, this whole scene with the Meachams was totally telegraphed. You could tell in episode two right, that this was going to eventually happen. And and I know that that's like when we first see Harold Meacham, I believe it was episode two, it was either episode two or episode three where we first see him for the first time, and you see how he treats Ward, and I'm like, he's going to kill him eventually. But, you know, Harold Meacham's clearly a shit dad. He's trying to he's trying to push his kids and you know lord over them all, the whole time. Well, especially Ward, and we will find a little bit more about uh, about his daughter later on. But jeez, man, you just you're right. You're you, the the element of surprise was completely ripped away from us before it even happened, and that's just the start of things that just didn't seem to go right for the show. A big problem for the show we're gonna talk about. I want actually want to talk about before we get to Iron Fist and Colleen Wing. I want to talk about the Meacham since we are already talking about them. A couple of my biggest issues with the Meacham outside of Tom Pelfrey is really stone faced and wooden acting. I didn't get a good read of how I was supposed to feel about them for the entire like not thirteen episodes, but I would say by about first eleven to twelve. Yeah, because you're kind of like. Okay, am I supposed to root for them? And are they assholes? I mean, you know, am I supposed to? Are they the villains? And it wasn't like one of those good ways. Like, ooh, is this a good guy or is this a bad guy? It's, you know, stuff like that. It's more of like I don't understand their reasoning in this show. <laughs> like, well, you get pulled in so many different directions, so many different times. With it's the so much gray. Yeah, you never really get to settle in. On anything, and there's no real, okay, well, Joy Meacham was a bitch, and then she does this and saves him, but then she turns into a bitch again, and it's it's backstabbing, and then saving, and backstabbing, and saving, it seems like over and over and over again, and to the point where you're going, okay, can you settle on one thing at some point and tell me how I'm supposed to feel about them? I mean, I guess... Ward Meacham at the end, if you want to call that a, a redemption, but it's almost like too little too late for that kind of thing. So I mean, I don't know, man. I think you're absolutely right. We're never, except for Harold Meacham, I think we feel pretty consistently about him the entire time. But but with everybody else, it's like, what what are you trying to accomplish here? What are you trying to do with these characters? To be honest, I didn't really get that with Harold Meacham. I had kind of the same thing of like, okay, is my supposed to root for him? Am I supposed to... You know, feel compassion for him. I supposed to be think, okay. He's a bad guy. Of course, it's later revealed he had a whole plan in the death of Danny Rand's parents. But again, in a sense, though, when you when you see the Meachams, it's like man, they are literally 
you want to talk about a villain problem like this really is the epitome of marvel having a villain problem because you know joy meacham really quick she was to use another character from a, a, another television universe arrow she is everything about felicity that we hate you know, she is she is constantly crying. She doesn't really offer anything uh, in, in a lot of certain cases. And Felicity does that in Arrow. She offers certain you know characteristics. She's really the the you know for to Oliver she is his conscience. With Joy Meacham, it's like okay, she's looking out for her brother, but outside of that, like she's just crying the entire time, being a cold bitch because it's kind of like. For example, there's a scene where she's sitting down with appears to be lawyers and stuff like that about you know these people who live near a plant that's done by, that's owned right. by Rand and it's giving them cancer and she's like oh well we're you know she's being really cold and saying well we're you know we're not the ones that fall here da 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 and then you see her be all sad it's like you're still like pushing the company line and saying we're not going to close production you're not you know what I'm saying like like don't pull this whole thing of like because. Oh, because she's crying, I'm supposed to be like, there, there, you're still a good person. It's like, you're still a terrible fucking person because you're poisoning these people still, and you're still towing the company's bomb dollar line. Right, exactly. And I mean, I get that you care about the company, you care about your family, but at the same time, yeah, you are you are a horrible person. And, and I gotta tell you, I actually got kind of a... Felicity vibe at times from Dan right? Rand too, but we'll talk about that a little bit later because we're talking about the Meachams right now. But I mean, you said that uh, we were talking about the villain problem again, and honestly, dude, if I'm being completely honest, right? I don't think this show knew who it wanted its villain to be. Right, right. Did it want to be Ward Meacham? Did it want to be Madame Gao? I swear to God, if they focused on Madame Gao. And if okay, here's the thing, because there is that scene where they go to that school and it ends up being kind of like Gao's school for gifted assassins. <laughs> Gao's helping hand, right? Pretty much. That's, pretty much. That's pretty much what it is. Um, if you want to make the villains the hand to make it like, oh, you know, Daredevil really fucked them up with everything he did in the second season of Daredevil, and now they have to rebuild, and you want to have Danny Rand be that kind of guy. And, you know, to, to have to go against that, like this whole like rebuilding of the hand, if you will, reconstruction, I should say, then that'd be cool. But when you have this literally telegraphed, and this is a problem with a lot of comics and a lot of TV shows that deal with the family gets murdered, prodigal son who owns the company comes back, but there's yeah. a new guy in charge, a new guy is an evil guy or an evil woman, and, you know, and we just know what happens at the end, pretty much. It's follows the same beats and footsteps and it's really uninspiring at this moment in time and so again if you wanted to go with the hand and make this full-on kung fu and make it fully about that then that would have been fine but again i agree they did not know who they wanted the villain to be i think that that's shown by showing okay harold meacham yeah he's a bad guy but he's you know being held up in his penthouse and why is that we find out it's because you know he made a deal with the hand and everything else like that so it's just one of those things. And I just want to say this, too, with Harold Meacham. Okay, dude, you can come back from the dead. Yet when he literally comes back from the dead after Ward stabs him, 
He's walking around New York City. Not one fucking person stops and says, "Hey, that's Harold Meacham." Yet because- everybody who remembers, uh, yet everybody remembered who Danny Rand was. Right, but I don't care who you are, how long you've been dead. When you see somebody, if I saw Walt Disney walking around fucking Virginia Beach, I'd be like, "Holy shit, that's Walt Disney!" <laughs> right, exactly. John Wayne's just taking a stroll down right. Virginia Beach Boulevard. How yeah. people in this city? You know, I, I understand New York is a very fuck you. I mean, I'm from there. I understand New York is a very fuck you, mind your own business city. But nobody points shit out like that. Nobody stops to say, hey, what's this guy doing back from the dead? Right, exactly. And and he was apparently pretty famous. Everybody should know who he was. But before he we move on. A multi-billion dollar. Exactly. Exactly. But before we move on, I want to just take one second to list all the quote unquote villains. In this show. You know, the the major ones. I'm not talking about, like, guys he fought. Right. There's Joy Meacham, Ward Meacham, Harold Meacham, Madame Gao, Bakudo, and, again, spoiler-filled, Davos, if you want to go all the way to the end, okay? That's a lot of villains. And and Davos, people who don't know, is Steel Serpent. Right, exactly. That's Even though he's not fighting under the Steel Serpent name in this show. Now, I understand that there are plenty of shows that we watch and love that have had multiple villains at the same time. But, first of all, they have both all have a clear purpose. And they all have their own separate spot that is, that's being, being focused on. There was zero focus on any one of these villains at any particular time in the show, in my view. Right, they were, and it's true, they were bouncing around from seeing the same villain to villain, and really, a problem with that, and you will know, get into Danny Rand in a second, but that problem really made the show feel like two different shows. When Danny Rand was with the Meachams, it felt like one show. When he was fighting Madame Gao's hand, that felt like a totally different show. They were, and the thing is, the problem is, they were both very meh. They were both very bad. Right. Exactly. As far as Davos goes, like, I know he's Steel Servant, but here's the thing. Doctor Strange just came out, right? Don't you notice that it's the, the same... And I understand jealousy's a bitch, but don't you see that the same reason why Doctor Strange and Mordo fight or are nemesis to each to one another yep. is the same thing with Davos and Danny Rand, yep. where it's like... I was supposed to be this, you know, you know, Doctor Strange is supposed to be the, you know, uh, Sorcerer Supreme. Supreme. I am, you know, Davos, you're not supposed to be the Iron Fist. I am. It's like, dude, you're still a kick-ass warrior. And you, and especially, and I'll say this, in Davos's case, dude, a dragon decides who fucking becomes Iron Fist. Right. It's not right. like the Masters went to Danny Rand and said, we bestow you this great honor, Danny Rand. Yeah, it's like the a dragon. trial. Yeah, and not just that. It's a fucking trial that Danny has that you have to go through. Right. So it's like, dude, if you want to be the Iron Fist, why don't you go through this fucking thing with this whole trial that Danny went through? Yeah, I mean, I know that they decide who goes in there, but still, I mean, you could have gone in there if you wanted to, dude. Sorry. You know, you can do, you could have done this. You could have been, oh, you know what? Work harder, son, motherfucker. Work harder, and it would have been you. How about that? Right. But let's get to the good guys of the show, and we're going to start off, of course, with Finn Jones, who plays Danny Rand. And I will say this. While the first episode was a complete mess, 
I mean, this whole show, I, I, to me, was bad. The first and last episodes were terrible. When he has to be charismatic, when he first walks through, I mean, we see in the trailer when he says, you know, hi, I'm Danny Randy, walks in like that, like, oh, this is very nice and, like, lighthearted and charismatic compared to the, the serious tone of Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and, yep. and Matt Murdock, you know, who are very serious people. Oh, he's going to be the guy who kind of puts some light into this. But then when it comes to him delivering serious lines and him having to be a badass, it did not transform well onto screen. Now, I don't think that's because Finn Jones is a bad actor. I think because the writing is just fucking terrible. And that goes for a lot of the characters, too, by the way. It wasn't just Danny Rand that suffered from that. But you're right. When he was being lighthearted. He had this certain boyish charm, and he certainly was a likable character, but even in the scenes where he's having his, let's just call them mental issues, when he's having his mental issues and he's starting to break down and everything like that, it just didn't play off for me, man. I just didn't feel it from him, and again, I don't think it's, you're right, it's not because he's a bad actor, it's just because it just, it just didn't work. I was not feeling it at all, and it was to the point where I don't even feel sorry for him, and part of that was because Let's face it, he does a lot of dumb shit in this show, especially well, early on. Well, he's very naive. Now, at first, I'm kind of like, okay, he was, he was away for 15 years. He was 10 years old when his plane crashed. So, yeah, he's going to be a bit naive. But, like, for example, the problem, you mentioned this when we were texting each other, you know, when, when he gets drugged by the Meachums, and then later on he's in the elevator with Joy, and he's like, you're a good person. It's like, hey, she just fucking drugged you like three episodes yeah. ago. No, you're not. I get that you're you probably not had a thing. A good person. Yeah, I get that you've got this thing for her from when you were kids and all that stuff, but come on, dude. And first of all, you drank the water. Never drink the water. Ever. If anybody that I think might be out for me at all puts up a glass of water in front of me, I'm not drinking it. And the other thing that bothered me was, and this was early on, and I get being naive and I get being 10, but even 10-year-olds would know stuff like this. You remember that scene where he he's talking to Ward and he says, I haven't broken any laws. And I'm like, bitch, you, in the first two episodes, you easily broke like five laws. Right. <laughs> Guess what? Even when you're 10, you should know breaking into someone's house, even if you think it used to be yours, is called breaking and entering. Right. And it's not okay. Stealing someone's car with them in it is not okay. No. (laughs) And and, and that's the problem, too, with with Danny Randis. And also going back to when I talked about the comic, his troubles, I could give less of a shit about them because they're not really troubles. It's like, okay, dude, I understand. Okay, your parents died. But can I just say this? Iron Man, Batman, uh, Arrow – Bunch of other characters. The Flash. You can keep going if Dare, you want. Daredevil. <laughs> uh, is there one superhero that does not have fucking daddy issues? Like, like, or in, in terms of my dad died, my parents died. Any like, parental issues? Yeah. Right. Like, holy shit. Uh, but like, like outside of that, it's like, what is his problem? Like, like what? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and the th- problem was when he was like trying to do the right thing and make Rand you know, this business that actually cared about its customers and clients and people and he was doing the right things. It's like, okay, he's doing, he's, it feels very genuine, but then it's just other things that he does in the show where I'm kind of like, uh, like what's the purpose of this? Like None what, of that. like the, what is your struggle in this? Those never get resolved. No, you see him do these quote unquote good things and you're absolutely right. 
but they never get resolved. You never go back to that. I mean, they, I know they go back to especially the thing where you were talking about with the whole, you know, people getting cancer and stuff like that. They do use that after that happens, especially with that video of his. But you never see any resolution to any of those things. So you don't give any redeeming quality to any character. If anything, you're left going, so what the hell happened with the whole uh, cancer thing? Did that actually, did something actually come of that or no? Right, right. You know? and, and, and the thing with, with Danny Rand in this is just, my, my issue with him is the fact that he just doesn't really come off as, you know how I said in the comic, He's very, you know, has a bravado about him. He's like, I am, you know, the king of fighters. I am this, you know. In the show, he gets his ass handed to him a lot, and then he still has the whole, I'm a great fighter. It's like, dude, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you have, like, a basketball player that averages two points a game, but it's like, I'm the I'm better than LeBron James. It's like, no, yeah. you're fucking not. Right, like, exactly. It makes zero sense. And moving on to another character, Colleen Wing, there were some times where I'm like, okay, she does have some badass to her. I will say this, and this ties to Danny Rand and my kind of dislike of him being so naive. When it's revealed that she is part of the hand, it's like Danny Rand still sticks by her. It's like, dude, she is part of the hand. And I'm sorry, the whole remote romantic aspect of their relationship felt so fucking forced. It was and out of nowhere, forced. it came Majorly out of forced. nowhere. And for example, when I was talking about okay, in the when I was reviewing the comic, him losing his power because Kunlun's been destroyed. It's like he talks, he makes talk about like I made a vow of chastity and all this other stuff, and I follow these rules. And it's like okay, maybe if the rule, if you broke some of those rules, you would result in losing your Iron Fist power. So when you sleep with Colleen, there's conflict there. It's like, hey, I do love you, but we can't be together because I'm going to lose this power. And will you, you and will you choose this power over her? And what would have been great, oh my god, what would have been even better is if, okay, they do sleep together, he loses his power because he breaks his vow of chastity, and suddenly he finds out that she's the hand. Holy shit, is that a great betrayal? Yeah, that would have been, been a great, great twist. Betrayal? That would have been a great twist. Not only did the twist not even really seem to matter, they made it not matter, and they resolved it way too easily. Way, yeah. way too easy. It's like, dude, I, I get, I, I think it's nice that you're that forgiving of a person, but this is some major shit here, and you're just like, <laughs> in, in a couple days, you're like, you know what? You're right. Whatever. Come on. She's the hand. You are the sworn enemy of the hand, and I know they get into that. I understand that, but what I'm saying is my problem is they resolved it way too easily. And he shouldn't even need her because he's, again, the Iron Fist. Well, at least he's the Iron Fist for five seconds when he's not using it as a garage door opener or something. Pretty much. He doesn't really even do yeah. anything with it. Yeah, and, and going back to their whole romantic aspect of it, you know, they're trying to build this chemistry between them. And the th problem is, too, is, and this really does play a problem with the soundtrack to, this, to the show because Luke Cage has iconic you know, music and stuff like that, which really added to the scenes and add impact to those scenes. The scene where he's doing a, what appears I would say is Tai Chi with her. And, and then you have that song come on and it's like, this makes no sense as to why this is happening. And plus it's like, okay, I understand you have an iPod from like back then, but the song that played came out like this year. So it makes zero sense. Yeah, well and done. it's just, <laughs> and, and, and it's also just one of those things of like, 
uh, you're, you're bounced between different things. Like you're going between hip hop and techno and rock and everything else like that. It's like you don't know what you want the sound of this show to be. I think it should be more of a mystical aspect. If you did like not saying Yanni, but if you did like kind of uh, kung fuish stuff you see, like a, like music you see, like in the martial arts movie, that would I think add to the the, the mystique of this. They would have added to the whole mystical aspect of the Iron Fist. And going into that, I'm not... Dude, the fighting in this, a show that's based on Kung Fu, the worst fight choreography I've ever seen in any project whatsoever. Yeah, I don't know who the choreographer was for this, or stunt coordinator, or whoever you want to blame, but it was just really, really bad, and it was slow. That was my biggest problem with it. It was so slow. Oh, and I'm not saying everything has to happen at lightning speed, even with experienced Kung Fu fighters. But there was literally two people in this show that seemed like they could actually fight. And one of them was not the Iron Fist. How is that possible? You were stuck on Kun Lun for 15 years? Right. And this is the best you can do? Not even talking about what you were talking about earlier. He gets his ass handed to him plenty by guys that shouldn't, including a drunk guy, by the way. I will say this, the, the drunk master fight I did like, though. Well, I liked him, though, better than, than Danny Rand, well, I, as I, far I, as fighting style. But, well, I just, yeah. I, well, I, well, probably because I love you know, Legend of Drunken Master. It's one of my favorite movies, and the, just, I find the whole drunken fighting style very fascinating. I, I did like that he used the, 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 this, the drinking device as a weapon, though. That was funny. <laughs> that was great. But, but, but at the same time, it's like, how, how is it possible that that you're the, who's supposed to be the 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 supreme fighter here? You're a living is weapon. So slow. You're a living weapon, and you're slow. You have zero delivery. Yeah, you end up winning in the end most of the time. But you know, this isn't like when Hulk Hogan used to get his ass beat for twenty minutes, in match, <laughs> he hulks up. and then the last three minutes he hulks up and wins. That's not how it should be. This isn't professional wrestling. You're supposed to be a trained martial artist, and when. You know, Bakudo was a better fighter than he was. And quite frankly, most of the time, so was Colleen Wing. The problem with with this is the fight choreography is a lot of the, the punches he's throwing, for the most part, don't have that 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 impact. For like when we like, I will, I'm not gonna lie. Watching Harold Meacham pound the heavy bag has more impact than yes. any move Danny Rand performs in this show. And I'm not gonna lie when. It's Danny Rand or Colin Wing are doing like one or like a, like a, a a chain of like one to two moves. It looks fluid, but when it's like five or more or three or more moves or an entire fight, it looks like a walkthrough. It right, looks like exactly. It, it looks like a practice session. It's like okay, guys, you know you're supposed to be kicking each other's ass right now. Why does it look like you guys are going through a walkthrough here? You know. Yeah, let me put it this way: since you're on Netflix anyway, for anybody listening, go watch. Like two episodes of Into the Badlands, and you will be oh, embarrassed yeah. at the quality of the fighting in Iron Fist. Not to mention his forms when he's doing his Tai Chi is terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. And if you're really paying attention, especially there was one that he was doing with Bakudo, or the one where he's trying to read, you know, jumpstart his chi or whatever. Yeah. If you watch Finn Jones during that scene. Half of the time, and I realize it's something he's not supposed to be familiar with, but just like any like musical, suddenly everybody knows the words of the songs and doesn't have to pay attention. Right. Half the time, he's phoning it in. He's oh, yeah. absolutely positively phoning it in. And if I'm the director, I'm going, cut, 
can we do that again? Because right. you're clearly just kind of moving your hands and shit. That just that didn't work for me. <laughs> pretty, it's just basically. terrible. It's 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 really really bad. And I mean, overall, this show. This what's what's bad about this show, and what I think makes the show worse, is the fact that this was the show before the, the Defenders. This was like Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and Luke Cage cleared the pathway. They built the ramp for Iron Fist to drive the car through the flaming ring and land. And instead, Iron Fist takes a sharp turn to the right and takes out an entire group of people. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, how? You were this close to winning and you just trip. How? How is that, you know? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's like going back to the Super Bowl. Atlanta, 25-point lead, they fucking blow it. Like, you have so much room to just drive the car in and win the day, and yet you fuck it up. And I want to point this out, too. A big problem with this show is its creator, its showrunner, is Scott Buck, who did the, the episodes of Dexter that a lot of people hate. And not to mention, if you hate Iron Fist... You're going to hate the Inhumans. Why? Because Scott Buck is the showrunner for Inhumans. So expect that same amount of shit we got in this in the Inhumans show. Right, and that is certainly possible. And think about the Inhumans for a second. Where you have to deal with a lot of characters and give everybody their little piece and make everything make sense and be able to manage a large group, which clearly was not done in Iron Fist. You couldn't manage the Meachams and the Hand. How the hell are you going to manage the Inhumans? And I hope we're wrong about this, because I actually think the Inhumans show actually has a decent chance of being good. But if this is who's going to be in charge of it, I would have my radar way up. And now, I, I, I think you can't help but... Have your radar up for the Defenders now, too, even though different people are involved in the making of that. It's like, well, this better be good now. Not to mention the way that it ends where him and Colleen try to go to Kunlun and it's gone. And I'm like, okay, so the Defenders are supposed to be next. So they just turn around and say, oh, it's closed. Let's go home. Was there, like credit scene? Was there an end credit scene that we missed right. where, she, where he just turns to her and goes, oh, should we turn back then? Right. And then just do that and then hit the iPod and down the mountain we go. I mean, come on. You're right. right. Is he just is he just going to all of a sudden be there? I mean, I guess if they wait a, f- a few episodes in to actually bring him into it, depending on how much real time has passed, it would make a little more sense. So, I mean, maybe I'll give him a little more credit. But at this point, here's my problem, too, given how this whole show goes. What's the justification other than it's in the comics for bringing him into the Defenders in the first place. What is he adding to this right. at all? And, and the problem with, and the thing that I wish they would have done, I said this on Twitter as well. I said, if they had done, if they had treated Iron Fist more like Punisher and Daredevil, where they brought him in season two of Luke Cage and made it more, it made season two of Luke Cage like Heroes for Hire. That would have been great because I think in small doses in a second in command role. I think Iron Fist can succeed, but when you make him the main central character and you give him his own show, he cannot carry that. And no. with that, and with that, dude, let's give our ratings on the show. And uh, if you want to go first, feel free. Oh God! I mean, I will not put anybody through the recapping right. of everything that we just said because there are so 
so many things that could have been great about the show that were completely just pushed down the stairs and you got to watch it fall in slow motion. From the casting that just didn't seem to land, you know, with Ward Meacham especially, I think you pointed that out beautifully, how wooden he was, where if somebody else better was playing that character, it might have had a little bit more impact, to the way that everyone just seemed to be portrayed from the poor fighting style. I mean, there was just... Not a whole lot to redeem about this. I mean, there were a few bright spots, Rosario Dawson, of course, being one of them. But the way the story was written, the way the story was told, I just can't. I can't, man. I just can't. I'm so disappointed that I have to give this three noodle restaurants that don't seem to exist that we find out about several times during the show out of ten. <laughs> well, going on with your Rosario Dawson thing, I think the scenes with her and Carrie Ann Moss were the best scenes because that's when you have really good actors in there. And I'm like, oh, good, finally, some decent acting, some good acting in this entire series when they're on screen. But, I mean, just going back and just seeing everything I've said negatively about this, this is a show where they just dropped the ball. Like, you literally dropped the ball with this, Marvel and Netflix. You had an open lane, and you were coming off of a great show in Luke Cage. And it's just like... It's just your typical billionaire, I want my company back show and comic and just story that we've seen over and over and over again. Uh, it didn't feel inspiring at all. None of this felt inspiring. It felt very uninspired from the movements, to the acting, to the writing. Uh, pardon me, I'm laying on my couch, I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm just like, normally with Netflix shows, I'm like, okay, I'm going to the next episode, go to the next episode. I will literally sit in my apartment for 13 hours and watch a full show. But this is like, okay, I'll watch three episodes today. Eh, do I want to watch three episodes? No, nah, I want to go to the movies. I'll go to the movies and I'll come back and I'll watch like, you know, a couple episodes of Iron Fist if, if I want, if I feel like it. This really just, it, it was just bad. The, the acting wasn't good. The, the villains were terrible. I'm going to give this two out of ten punches to the floor that do not demolish a building. Oh, we could go for another half hour on just that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to do it for our spoiler-filled review of Iron Fist. Coming up next, it's Nerd News. Stay tuned. This is Victoria Atkin, the voice of Evie Fry, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's about that time. We go around the internet and we see what's trending because it's time for what? Nerd Nerd News! And our first story, you know, we go to the movies a lot. We spend various sums of money to see see movies. And basically now studios, at least not all, but some, are talking about, you know what? Let's make movies available for on-demand and watching and purchase in homes sooner than they are right now. Yep, and this is according to Variety, and they say six of the seven biggest Hollywood studios are actually going to offer that. Now, the times kind of vary. I'll give you two guesses which one's the only one holding out. Uh, Disney. Yeah, yeah, that, that... uh, I wonder why. (laughs) They are not at all interested in participating in this program. Shocking, because they're always the holdout. But here's the thing. It seems like Fox and Warner Brothers, according to Variety, are the ones that are, are more cool with this than others, but... The thing that kind of jumps out at me is the initial discussions from Warner Brothers are saying a $50 on-demand rental about 17 days after it opens. And I look at that, and we'll talk more about what the other proposals are in a minute, but let's stick with this for a second. To me, 
even looking at the cost of what it takes for somebody like me to go to the movies with my wife, and you know, you get popcorn and sodas and all that stuff, 50 bucks, that's a little steep. That's steep for especially somebody like me who's a single guy, and you know, even if I had a girlfriend, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you're talking two tickets, so that's $10 each, plus you know, popcorn or, or whatever, you know, food or drink, and that's an extra 10 to 15 So, yeah, that's less than $50. So it's $50 for a movie. Not mention it. And then here's the thing, too. It's not like you're getting it the day, like you're going to get it on demand the day right. that it's actually out in theaters. And I understand that you want to wait a little bit so theaters can make their money and studios can make their money at the theater. But because, you know, especially because, you know, IMAX and everything else, but $50 is very steep, especially, you know, in today's day and age when you have a family, just a family of three and you have to get in with the whole popcorn, soda, some places, depending on where you live, you have to pay for parking too. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, insane for that price. Right. And if we dive deeper into this, it looks like Fox and Warner, uh, Fox and Universal, excuse me, are looking at maybe a $30 rental price, but a little bit further out, more like 30 to 45 days. And I mean, if you think about it, that's not, I mean, in today's age, it's not really that close, you know, because I mean, usually when something ends its run, it's about 90 days after that, which to Blu-ray. And I mean, a little bit shorter than that in digital on demand, but at the same time, it's, it's, you're right. The, The key for me on this is it's not like it's right there at the release date. And plus, not only that, you've got to worry about spoilers online all the time and can you really avoid spoilers you know three weeks out and all this stuff but i mean for somebody like me that has a young kid that doesn't always get the opportunity to be able to go out to the movies you got to find a babysitter and prices for babysitters if you got to pay for one i mean being able to do this at home was is definitely worth the money but at the same time you've got to weigh that against how long you have to wait as well well, Universal is actually being the most aggressive when it comes to the release dates because they're saying, hey, one studio wants to do $50 in 17 days. Well, how about $30 in 20 days, which I think is more reasonable. Again, going on the, the family dynamic here or even the couple's dynamic of you know $20 plus whatever for food, which probably less because you can just go to the store and buy soda and pizza or whatever. But I look at this and – I look at what you and I do for our jobs, which is this show, and you know, for people like us, we can't wait around 20 days after a movie's out and then review it, you know, because nope. by then a new one be coming out, or a new show will be coming out, or whatever. So if you're somebody like us, it's, it doesn't help. I think more for personal life, uh, I think that it's it's good. Only my only thing though is. When you're somebody like myself, who, who again, single guy, I can't see spending $30 on just a movie because here's the question, too. If a movie has an end credit sequence, will we get the end credit sequence? Because a lot of times. I would like to think so. Well, here's the thing, though, because a lot of times when you go to premieres of movies or whatever, uh, or screeners or whatever, they don't have those scenes attached at the end of the movies. True. And another thing is, I understand that DVD sales are, are slowly dying and they're, they're, they're fading because, you know, Netflix and Hulu and people want to be able to have, every, you know, all these hundreds of and thousands of th- titles at their disposal and watch when they want to watch it. Also, it's a thing of, for me at least, it's, it's the sign of, oh my God, I don't have t- DVDs taking up space, you know? 
and, and that's another thing. But again, it's 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 kind of a thing of okay, well, we're gonna lose. You know, if you're not gonna go out and buy a DVD, and you're just gonna give me the the money for thirty dollars, you know, for thirty dollars, you can give me the movie, just the movie, and no bonus features, no nothing. You know, what I'm saying there has to be some sort of extra incentive outside of right. not having to wait for a movie to hit DVD when I can get the bonus features, I can get the Blu-ray quality and everything else. And this is for a rental. Let's let's make right. sure we clarify that. Right. That this is for a rental. So you're not even owning it. Now maybe you get some sort of a bonus of like fifty percent off the digital copy when it comes out or something like that. I don't know. But let's go back to something that you mentioned about us reviewing movies. Can you imagine if we did it this way? In March, this particular March we would just now, Ooh. as of probably today, be able to see Logan. Yeah, but also, but also, you look at this month that's coming out, Logan, Beauty and the Beast, Power Rangers, Kong, and Ghost in the Shell. That's five movies. Times that by 30, what do you get? That's a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's and double, I mean, I that's, get that's that you're double probably, triple of what you're going to pay. I get that for, you're probably doing that anyway. You know, because you're already paying that go to go to the movies anyway, probably, or close to it. But at the same time, now, instead of paying that and seeing it day of, if you like, if that's your prerogative, you're paying that to see it three weeks after the fact when you might know half the things that happen in the movie. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, you know, you brought up an interesting point, too, is avoiding spoilers. We live in a very spoiler-heavy you know, time in terms of social media where you you just scroll past the story and the first comment's always, oh, I can't believe that this person died. It's like, God damn it, the, show, the movie just came out, you know, or the show just aired. And uh, That happened to me with Logan. It was like this, the, oh, not the day on. after the release, but the day oh, after on. the release. Come on, you knew what was going to happen with Logan. Not that particular thing. You something knew. Else. Not you everything. Knew. I didn't know the entire movie before I went into it. That would be stupid. <laughs> Still, you knew he was going to die in the I end. Didn't, I'm not talking about him dying. But looking at the $30 asking price, this I think is more geared towards your situation. You know, you have yourself, your wife, and your kid. And you don't want to have to go to a theater and your kid who, I love my nephew, but goddamn, he loves to run around. You yes, can't he does. go to the theater and expecting him to sit in a seat for an hour and a half, two hours to watch a, uh, a movie. Nope. So this is, I think, a great way for families, parents, or kids to to sit down and be like, okay, we're going to watch this new Smurfs movie. You know, and, and, it's, and it's, I think it's good because there are movies where we're not going to review them and for various reasons. But it's like, hey, you know, if you and your wife or you and your kid want to sit down and watch a movie that we're not going to review – and you can wait those days, you know, for it to be right. able to, to watch it. Right. That's well, part of it. Because so, I don't even watch movies that we don't review because I literally just can't get to the movies. <laughs> you know, I, I don't do that. I mean, when I, when we didn't have when we didn't have the little guy. Yeah, I would go off on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, a lot of times like you, you do. You'll go in the middle of the week, just go to a movie during the day. It's cheaper. There's hardly nobody there. You know, you get in, you get out kind of thing and you're good to go. But now, with the family dynamic, that's not as easy to do. So, seeing that $30 price tag, especially if it's 30 bucks, seeing a $30 price tag, I could handle that a few weeks after the fact. Plus, you're a big baller, so we all know that $30 is nothing to you. Oh, yeah, I'm dropping 20s from the roof all the time. <laughs> when your kid's not dropping toys on your head, that is. Right, exactly. 
But our next story, James, sticking with the movie realm, we're heading towards Sony. And Sony, of course, partnered with Marvel for Spider-Man, and Spider-Man Homecoming is going to be coming out this summer. However, Sony is also saying we're going to make our own Spider-Man-related movies, Venom, which has been planned for a while. That's been coming out. They're planning the release date of October 5th, 2018. However, this is where Sony is getting into very murky territory because, first of all, they said it's not going to be tied to Spider-Man Homecoming, but we're going to be doing a Silver Sable and Black Cat movie. Now, my first thought of this is this is nothing more, um, and I hate to say this, but this is really nothing more than Sony's reaction to Gotham City Sirens being released. Not only that, I mean, by the way, this story broke by Variety the other day, but it's also a huge cash grab to me. It's like they're so giddy and excited that people actually liked the Spider-Man that was picked out by Disney and Marvel. Let's just put that out there right, right away. They want to try and capitalize on as much of that as they possibly can. And I know that Chris Yost is attached to the project to do the script and everything like that. But, and I mean, I'm not saying that silver Sable and black cat aren't good characters, but you're right. This is a direct response to that. And this just for a company that on their own hasn't really gotten Spider-Man right. This just seems like a bad idea. Well, here's the thing too, is that this is not going to be connected to, this is going to be a, a, this is a problem we have with the Fox universe with the X-Men. Where, okay, you have this separate Spider-Man universe where you're probably not going to have Spider-Man be a part of it because you had to cast another Spider-Man because, you know, the whole Black Cat scenario and everything like that. But how confusing to the timelines is this going to be? It's still Spider-Man, so for people, some people it's hard to differentiate the two universes. Black Cat's whole entire backstory, a lot of her character, is tied yep. to Peter Parker, is tied to... To Spider-Man, outside of the reason reasons why she decides to uh, learn safe, safe cracking and and learns how to fight and everything else like that, which is pretty dark actually, yeah. very, very Jessica Jones esque, I'll say that. And I don't see her as somebody who can hold her own movie in yeah. terms of being a lead. I can see her being uh, a, a second in command or, or kind of like a Catwoman thing in in the Dark Knight Rises scenario, but. I'm. I just. I look at this man, and like I know she's popular to a sense, but as a comic character, I don't see how she can hold her own movie, especially with somebody like Silver Sable, who I'm sorry, nobody I think really knows what's who. Who Silver Sable really is? Your casual fan? No way. I mean, there's oh, no way your casual fan knows. But here's another question. How much of this is trying to capitalize on Felicity Jones's popularity if she's still going to be Black Cat? Of course, you know she played uh, Felicia Hardy in Amazing Spider-Man 2 for Sony. So if they've still got her attached to play Black Cat, how much of this is, oh, everybody loved her in Rogue One, so we need to get this out there as soon as possible so people still remember that. It's not like she's going to be doing any more Star Wars movies. I just, I still, I think that, you know, coming off of the review we did for Iron Fist where we talked about how, just the way that Danny Rand was and just the way that the writing was and stuff like that, how even in the comics, he's not really a leading guy. So I think that with this, and this is something I think studios need to learn, is even though superhero movies do make a boatload of money at the box office, that's true, you have to understand what characters, you know, what their limits are and, and, and what you can do with them in terms of their roles and everything else like that. 
I would love to see Black Cat on the silver screen sometime. But as a leading person in her own movie, I don't see how strong she is as a character. And I think for a TV show, that'd be fine. Well, I mean, people, we just need to admit something to ourselves here. And and it's no knock against anyone or any character or anything like that. We just need to start realizing that some things are just better suited for television. And that's okay, because the stuff that's been coming out on TV lately, especially if you want to throw Netflix and and the Hulu original series and Amazon Instant in there as well, it's been pretty damn good and pretty damn entertaining. So I don't think there's anything wrong about having to tell a story on television because characters just can't be fleshed out in a two-hour movie. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you look at this whole thing overall... This is Sony. This is my big reasoning why I, I don't think that this Black Cat project should happen is because I don't think they're going to get her right. I don't because of the track record they had with the Spider-Man films. And I think that, again, this is just, I think, a reaction. And it's a sad thing you know, to, to say, but I think it's part, part is true is that this is them seeing, oh, shit, Warner Brothers is doing Gotham City Sirens, a female-led movie we got to do something similar to that. Well, who do we have? Well, we don't really have a lot of people. So, but we do have these characters and I'm sorry, but they're not on the level of Catwoman, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn. <laughs> Plus you know? we're already having Wonder Woman coming out in a couple months. So you're already kind of too late with the whole female led movie. Right. Thing, so. right. <laughs> right. You're not going to get there. And James, you mentioned Netflix a little while ago and they're actually working with Ubisoft on an Assassin's Creed project, according to Assassin's Creed Head of Content. Yeah, and I want to read one of these quotes that was put up by GameStop from the Reddit AMA that that he did. And he said, I don't know why this makes me laugh. He said, we will take our time to get sure we deliver something we can be proud of. <laughs> I guess it's I guess it's funny for me because I don't feel like they've always done that with Assassin's Creed. No. Uh, the games, so... Uh, or maybe even the movie, I don't know. But I gotta say, when this, when they first talked about doing the movie, and of course you said now the movie being out and everything like that, my first thought was, cool, I'd love to see Assassin's Creed on screen, see what they do, but I think it might be suited for the small screen. Yeah, I think that with Assassin's Creed, and don't get me wrong, I we haven't seen the movie, so I can't judge what the movie was like for me, or you, but... Here's the thing. It's a fascinating concept concept either way. So I think that if you want to put it on Netflix, I think it'd be interesting. Uh, it'd be interesting because of the budget, because you're going to have to go through various periods. Be, you know, you're going to be jumping between yep. multiple periods in the season. You can focus on each – is each season going to be focused on a general period overall? I mean that's what I think that you're probably going to end up doing, uh, which would be, would be pretty cool. But I mean, this is some some interest for me. I, I'm I'm pretty interested in this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be. I mean, and I'm sure it won't be tied to the movie universe either, or maybe it will be. I don't know if that would be a mistake or not because they're already talking about a sequel to the movie as well. So we'll find out where we're going there. But I think that this would be something that you could absolutely do. I mean, it's not like. Netflix is any stranger to doing different time periods and stuff like that. And I mean, look at a series of unfortunate events where every couple of episodes, it was a completely different setting and a completely different place. And I realize it's not exactly the same because they'd be more involved, but they certainly have the ability to 
have the budget to be able to ramp up these sorts of things and do them properly. Well, here's the thing with a series of unfortunate events is that a lot of it was green screen, a lot of it was very small sets. So, you know, and, and, and part of its appeal was that kind of not cheap looking route, but kind of artsy looking route. But when you're dealing with something as a grand scale of Assassin's Creed, and you're talking about like, you know, huge towering cat, you know, buildings and, and churches and, and skyscrapers and whatnot, and just all the action. I think that that's a lot that's going to have to go into it in terms of production. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Assassin's Creed. Like again, you know, what periods they can go to? Are they going to be all new characters, or are they going to be you know characters that are already based in the game? Uh, that's uh, some some pretty interesting uh, routes they can go. What would you like to see them do for the first season? What would you like to see them do? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's more of a where would I like to see them go uh, type of thing. I know that they've got uh, Assassin's Creed Egypt is the rumor uh, for the next game, which I think would be friggin' phenomenal. You want to do Egypt? Although, you know what would be kind of interesting is if they said it like maybe during the Crusades or something. I think that that would be kind of neat to see that that kind of era brought to life in the Assassin's Creed realm. Here's my problem, though. Medieval times, I think, are done way too much. I think that's uh, a, a genre or a setting that I should say that's very oversaturated, I think, at this point in terms of projects. I mean, my first initial thought was Egypt because, I, again, they haven't done that before. Right. And I think that's a fat. I mean, you want to talk about a fascinating setting that you could use on a lot of different stories that you oh, can yeah. tell. I mean, King Tut, Ramses the Great, so many things that you could do. But, again, I mean, if they're going to ma- possibly do the game, obviously it doesn't seem realistic that they would make that the TV series. So that would be my first choice. But, I mean, I think either way, I oh, think that would be pretty neat. You know what I would love to see? An Assassin's Creed TV show, like at least one season, where it's like centered around the Shogun era. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. That would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. I would now we're getting somewhere. That. Yeah, I that would, would be interesting. Because I love, I love Samurais. I love the whole Shogun era. I, I, I would love to see that. You know, and, and I mean, you're talking about. Uh, you know, maybe a Genghis Khan type thing, right. or even, you know, we've got uh, Attila the Hun, you could even do something there. There's a lot of options, man. And that's going to do it for Nerd News, but coming up next, we're going to be joined by Wonder Woman artist Liam Sharp, who's going to be talking about issue 19 of Wonder Woman and more. That's coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Greg Rucka, comic book writer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think it's easy to say, based on the numerous reviews that we've done on the show and on our website, that we are big fans of what DC has been doing with Wonder Woman and big fans of one guy in particular. The guy that's the artist on the book, Liam Sharp. Liam, how you doing, man? Hey, hey, James. Hey, Nick. It's, uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thank you for the very warm and kind introduction. Oh, hey, it's our pleasure. I mean, and one of the things that, that we that we love so much about seeing the stuff that you post on Twitter and, and online and all that is that you talk a lot about how honored and proud you are to be working on Wonder Woman since last year. So out of all the characters you've gotten to work with over the last 30-plus years, what makes Wonder Woman extra special? Oh, there's so many things. I mean, it's, it, it's twofold because um, part of it is having stepped out of the mainstream for a while and been doing lots of other in, indie uh, kind of things, getting back into that arena is, is actually really tough. Um, I was very lucky when I was a kid to get in there when I was young and um, 
I kind of broke in without fully realizing how lucky I was, you know. When you've got the benefit of uh, age behind you, not necessarily wisdom, you kind of realize uh, how how privileged um, a position that is. So just, just to be even drawing any of the, the main big characters is, is an extraordinary privilege. But on top of that, um, what I found out about Diana is you don't just draw her, you fall in love with her. And I've heard this from all the creators I know that have that I know personally that have worked on the book. They all felt this way about her, whether they had had that sense before or whether they came to the book um, with a little less knowledge, um, as was really the case for me. And it's, it happens very quickly, too. Uh, she's just so rich. I mean, she just has this beautiful, rich world of, of science fiction and fantasy and mythology. But on top of that, she's unusual in that she... It's not all about the fighting with her. It's about uh, empathy and care and uh, compassion. And, uh, you know, that's the, 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 the sort of fighting aspect is the, is the last aspect. Not that she can't, you know, create quite a mess when she needs to. <laughs> but she's, uh, you know, she's very, she's very special. And Liam, as James mentioned, you've drawn numerous characters over many years. So what to you is one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to drawing superheroes in general? That's an interesting question, actually. I think anybody who draws a comic knows how hard it is to, to produce a monthly title. Just to be able to keep the energy levels up, um, it's not about the ego. Really, the most important thing is that we service and serve the story first. I think you know that's a good that's a really important thing when we come to these books is to not think of ourselves first and try to you know show off our skills but to honor the characters so I, I think one of the misconceptions probably is that one thing I see often is people getting very upset about characters being uh, not not being the way they want them to be as fans and it's impossible for us as creators to know what's in the minds of every fan. Uh, and it's also important that we do take risks. You know, it's like, for instance, you know, with Diana, there's a, there's a hardcore fan base that loves her with Superman. Um, there are other guys that like her, the idea of her with Batman. Uh, our particular team is very keen to keep her with Steve, you know. Mm. Um, and everyone's got very valid and reasonable reasons uh, for that. The reality is, She's gone. She's been through all of those different incarnations. She'll probably cycle back through them again. You know, we have forever. <laughs> it's not like there's only going to be one run and she'll disappear and that'll be it. We we have forever to try these things, and and we should as well because we don't know what's going to work until it does or doesn't. Uh, and that's part of the creative process. It's also the what well, you know. It's just it, it's just part of the nature of creating anything. And I, what what worries me sometimes is that the, particularly the hater, the rise of the hater, uh, has made people increasingly sort of nervous mm -hmm. to yeah. do anything because because of the kick kickback. Yeah, I mean, well, I want to touch on something that you <clears throat> said uh, a couple minutes ago about Diana, and I know that uh, we've had Greg Ruck on the show before, so we know that he likes to have his artists is very involved in the creative process. We know that Diana's a warrior, yeah. but you and the team have really given her a sense of innocence and vulnerability as well, especially in the current storyline, The Truth. So what's it like to kind of capture that other side of her a little bit more? Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I look at the first 
takes that I did the first tryouts of, of drawing her. She was a little bit more of the snarly, very self-possessed, uh, confident version that you see. But as I discovered more about her and as I talked to Greg, it was like, this isn't really what we want to do. You know, she's she's almost like an innocent. She's only been in the world for 10 years. She come, She's come down from the mountain, you know, as in Themyscira. She's, she's been very cut off from the larger, the world at large, you know, and has this kind of... Uh, Nick Nick Scott said it in a really nice way. She said that um, she's almost like the Buddhist coming down from the mountain. It doesn't matter that he has never been a part of the world. He's still got an innate wisdom and has meditated on you know, compassion and caring and all of these things. Uh, and I really like that um, almost child's view. So although she's six foot two and, and built like a tank, she's also got an element of uh, wonder about her, literally. I'm not wishing to to make a pun, oh, but she's uh, <laughs> she is. <laughs> it's inevitable. You use that term. Oh, she's wonderful all the time. You know, wonder wonder is all about what she is about, really. Um, and it's not just that we have a sense of wonder looking at her. She embodies wonder herself, um, and she has a childlike wonder when she looks out of the world, and that's. That's that's kind of uh, a, a really nice take on it. So I do when I'm drawing her. I try to. There's an element in her features that is slightly childlike. Sometimes she can be quite chiselled and hard-looking and almost sneery. You know, um, that just doesn't seem right. Definitely for not for our incarnation anyway. I don't think she's that. She hasn't got that arrogance at all. She has got no arrogance. That's not to say that she's not um, very sure of her abilities. Uh, but that, you don't need arrogance to be sure of yourself in that sense. And she's going to question everything too. It's like she doesn't come to everything with a preformed answer. She's going to look at all the assets and all the, all the different facets of any given situation and try and come up with something that the best solution for everybody, not just put a stop to it. Very much the case with all with all her uh, rogues gallery too. That they have a that there's um, a lot of depth to them. We, we feel empathy even for them. And while we're on the topic of Wonder Woman's rogue gallery, a character that's received a new look is, of course, Cheetah. And when James and I first saw her new look, we were blown away by it. So what aspects of her character do you feel have been enhanced not only by her new look, but also Dr. Minerva's recent sacrificial decision to revert back to her Cheetah appearance? Oh, we, fell, we all fell in love with her. My first decision uh, when, when I was first uh, talking to DC about that design was we got to lose the hair. It just doesn't seem a, appropriate to the character. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't seem like a, a sleek cheetah, a fast-moving, dangerous, wild animal. It seemed like a sort of hangover from 80s hair metal. Um, <laughs> so that, that, was a, that was an early thing we lost. There was two things, losing the hair, and then I was looking at some actual sort of pictures of cheetahs, and they had these, they have these beautiful black tears. So I hadn't seen drawn on her face before and they actually um say a lot about the character because they they sort of give her this um pathos there's something that's said about the character in the in the black tears you know i mean greg also made her sort of fierce a little bit more uh, more of a beast she's losing that intellect that she has as uh, as barbara ann uh, and she's reverting slowly to being a beast, you know, and this this is a, 
a very dual aspect, I, I guess, of that character. It makes it kind of a bit richer. It's not just about evil and it's not just about the curse of eating human flesh and everything. It, it's actually more, as much at least, about losing what matters enormously to her, which is her intellect and her knowledge and her own quest to, to, to know about these these different realms, you know, and about archaeology and anthropology and all the things that that, that character's very invested in. They matter to her. In, in, in a weird way, she gets her dream, but it's not what she wanted. She gets the acknowledgement and the evidence and the proof that there is actually gods, and she even gets to kind of become one or the bride of one. Um, but it is... Uh, you know, it's not it's not what it's made out to be, and it certainly doesn't prove to be, uh, uh, you know, a good thing for her. I think it's really it brings a, a lovely element of tragedy to the run that we've been doing. Um, and I also loved, you know, the, the big battle of the of, of the uh, first Diana Cheetah um, conflict was a hug. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they hug it out. Yeah. Loved that panel. That was really great. We're talking to artist Liam Sharp of Wonder Woman. Of course, issue 19 is available now. Now, Liam, I got to ask you, Diana just had her birthday on March 22nd, which, of course, you made mention of on Twitter. If you could give Diana Prince one gift, what would it be and why? Oh, oh, uh, the key to return to Themyscira as and when she wanted Probably, Aww. although Greg would probably hate me for Look saying that. Look at that sweet little gesture, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's so it's like it's like such an innocent gift to give, you know. <laughs> I could see the panel now too with the single well, tear and and the hug for Liam and everything like that. that but, that, that'd but, be but that no, but then I can uh, see the panel after where Greg is like trying to strangle Liam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why did you end the story? That's <laughs> true. You're like, no, this is not how it's meant to be, Liam. Bad boy, go back to your drawing board. <laughs> and, and Liam, you mentioned earlier about Themyscira and Wonder Woman, of course, is home to one of the most iconic settings, that being Themyscira. So if you were lucky enough to get a grand tour of the island, what would be the first thing you'd want to see? Oh, man, I want to see all of it. You know, that's one thing I I couldn't get um, sick of drawing. I love the idea that there's, I mean, to me, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a world on Themyscira. This is a magical island. There's everything, you know, there's the highest peaks and there's underwater caverns and there's whatever you can imagine. This is a paradise island. It's there. So there's not only, um, fabulous kind of ruins that date back two, three thousand years. Um, but uh, I imagine too, that there's a kind of progressed society there that has progressed parallel to our world in its own unique way. And I would love to sort of explore things like that because to, 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 to me, there's, there's a lot of room there for, for some really fresh thinking, um, and, you know, room just to see things that, Maybe we haven't seen before. Oh, there's a tendency for us to always draw the Themyscirans and the Amazons in um, sort of pseudo-Greek clothing. I don't know. I feel like there's probably centuries of fashion that have happened there that might be quite curious and uh, you know, and, and are worth thinking about. These are people. These are intelligent uh, and creative people, and I imagine that would be reflected in their architecture and their clothing and their 
their science and uh, everything else. So there's there's a lot I would like to know about Themyscira. I wanted to get back to one of the other characters that was in, in this last issue, and we've actually seen him progress. One of the things I loved about the current issue was what happened with Adriana slash Dr. Cyber. So do you feel she's kind of quietly right. evolved over time? And talk a little bit about the look that you went with in this recent issue, because it's awesome. Well, it's interesting because um, Greg was always keen that she would be um, almost a comedy character. He he finds her very entertaining. Uh, and the way she will adopt sort of comical, almost co- quite nasty, you know, characters and outfits and, and looks while she's while she's talking to people. So she she sort of mocks Cheetah by having the Cheetah costume. She uh, she presents herself as a as a very sexy looking Wonder Woman to Steve Trevor, making her whip like into a heart. I say whip the uh, the uh, rope. We call it a whip. That's that's Greg for you he says no it's not a rope it's a whip i don't know what he's got going on there but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's the little kinky bit that describes um, greg quite well <laughs> but, <laughs> so the on that side um it's really fascinating but in this particular issue she obviously brings out the fury um the anger she seems to be cycling through lots of versions of herself uh there's there's herself on fire towards the end as she really gets angry which is obviously the moment when she died but i also wanted to reference some of the earlier uh, you know the the sharper eyed fans of her will will notice in the full figure page that i did actually pointedly reference one of the earlier costumes which i won't where people can go and, and, and find what that is but it's there if you look so it does tie back to to different versions but she, she's a she's a great character. She's she's been sort of slightly sidelined by the other characters. She's great friends, obviously, with with Kale. Those two are very much together. But but Kale is the driving force, and we haven't really seen uh, Cyber really lose it up until this issue, um, and she definitely does. But uh, Etta deals with that quite. Uh, in a quite straightforward matter, you know, manner, you know. Oh, very much so. And, you know, before we get you out of here, Liam, I want to talk about Laura Martin and just her use of colors in this recent issue that's out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe the, the kind of trust that goes into the relationship between an artist and a colorist. And also, when you see Laura's finished work, what sticks out to you the most in terms of her use of colors? Laura is an absolute joy to work with, not as uh, nobody in the world is remotely surprised to hear. I've wanted to work with her forever and a day since I first sort of came across her work about 20 years ago. Um, I've done a couple of covers with her over the years, but never had the, the, the sort of privilege to work with her on, a, on an ongoing series. So when I was asked who I wanted, she was the first person I mentioned, and I couldn't believe it when I got her. So I'm very, very, very happy uh, to be working with her. The process is... Really, you know, I have to take my head off. Uh, hat, head off. I could take my head off, but it would leave a bit of a mess. <laughs> so I, probably not not advised. Uh, sometimes it feels like that, though. Drawing this book, to be honest, no, I have to take my hat off to her. She's she's amazing, but uh, but I have to take my hat off to the editorial team because what they do with this book um, is they allow everybody to be involved in the the final process. So when I've 
when I've done my black and whites, people can feed back on that. You know, anyone is, even down to Jody the letter, if, if someone's got a point of view about a panel or a page, then they're free to say so. Um, so we get to see the lettered pages, we get to see the coloured pages, we'll get to feedback, and it's really collaborative like that. Uh, I've not had a book previously that was so collaborative uh, to the point to that point where everybody was involved, uh, and I think it's a, just a beautiful way of working on a book. Having said that, it does naturally fall into sort of camps, so people tend to leave uh, myself and Laura to wrangle over the, the, the colour if, if there's ever anything that needs changing. And usually it's tiny things, you know, and it'll be a little request from me or it's something that I haven't mentioned or, you know, uh, quite often I'll, I'll try to give her upfront notes so she knows what I've got in mind. But there's very little I ever have to say to her. It always comes in and you just kind of melt. It's, it's, it's magic. She's amazing. Absolutely, and the whole team has been great, and that's why we love Wonder Woman. We know that you guys do, too, so make sure you get issue 19, which is available right now. Issue number 20 is going to be available with the Godwatch storyline on April the 12th, but the next chapter of The Truth is going to be coming on issue 21 on April 26th, and you're going to want to see everything that this guy's doing because it's great. Liam Sharp, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure, and uh, uh, anytime you want me, just give us a shout There'll be other things in the future to talk about, I'm sure. So, James, I'm 28 years old. I've been on the earth for a good amount of time, and I've read a lot of comics over those many years. I know you're older than I am. You've read more because you've been a more you know alive longer than I have. But I have just had to say this. Everything that DC is doing in terms of rebirth, I know we say all the time, but I really mean it when I say this. Of all my years reading comics since I was you know seven years old, the Rebirth Initiative by DC, I think, is the best initiative ever done in comics history. I know, and there was so much talk about how nervous people were and how things, you know, what was it really going to be like? And then with each release of each book, Wonder Woman being right near the top of that list, you're going, wow, this is exactly what comics are supposed to feel like. This is what it's supposed to be like when you read stories about characters that you grew up loving and that you still love to this day. This is how it should be done. And I think, just talking about Wonder Woman specifically, there's been a lot of great stories, but this might be the most unique Wonder Woman story ever. And also because I think that what adds to that uniqueness is the fact that we're talking with Liam about this off the air, about Cheetah and just how... Her redesign that they've done in this run has been amazing because it's added an extra emotional level to her. I mean, there's a panel, there's a, a, a sequence in one of the earlier issues where Diana is kind of holding her to the ground and she's kind of like, t- you know, trying to make her, you know, relax and be like, she's like, everything's gonna be okay, everything's yes, gonna be okay. Yes. And I mean, it's a very mothering you know, sequence of, of panels and your heart. I know my heart just sank when I saw that. I'm like, wow, these two for a long time have been adversaries, but, but you're showing a layer of Wonder Woman where like, Hey, I know we've been at each other's throats for a while. And we've kind of been adversaries for a while, but you know, at the end of the day, I want to, I see the good in you. And then as you know, Dr. Minerva gets her human appearance back and then, makes that sacrifice again mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and just says, you know what, I will, you know, don my Cheeto skin again as long as it keeps these people safe and everything else like that. And just, you know, it's just, when you want to talk about Dimensions added to a character, she's at the top of that list next to Wonder Woman. If you want to talk about what Liam's done with the look, I would say the look definitely improved. Oh, yeah. And the, the points that he made uh, when he was answering your question there about losing the hair and all that stuff, he just started well, from there and went. And, and what they ended up with was something completely amazing and, you know, kind of had a, the realism that this book kind of presents in it. Well, not only that, but remember, she was cursed with this cheetah thing. And the new look feels a lot more like a curse. Oh, absolutely. Now that you lose lose the hair, it feels more like a curse and a burden and something you never would wish on your own worst enemy. Right. I mean, a leotard leotard can be a curse and a burden, too, but this is probably a little bit worse. Right. But, I mean... Overall, this has been a, a great series from Greg Rucka on down. Everybody that's worked on this Wonder Woman series has just been phenomenal. I mean, the the, the every panel is just gorgeous to look at. Every word of writing and dialogue is just really grabs you emotionally and, and you know spreads you across that emotional spectrum and and pulls you in, in many different ways. So just hats off to everybody over at DC and everybody that works on on Wonder Woman. Absolutely. I mean, through the editing team in there as well, just everybody that's been done, that's just done such a good job and continues to do such a good job. I can't wait for issue 20 for God watch coming out on April 12th. And then of course the truth continuing on April the 26th from Liam and the group. I mean, I just, I just can't wait. This is like the first book I read when we get our books for the week. It's like, I have to read wonder woman right now. Exactly, man. I hear exactly what you're saying. And that's going to do it for us for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to DC Comics and Liam Sharp for coming on and talking about Wonder Woman. Go get issue 19, which is out now, and get those later issues when they come out as well. It's just an amazing series overall. And hey, if you want more of us during the week, be sure to hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. That's where you can find us. Also, we're on Twitter at Down and Nerdy 757. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch at Merck with one arm. The one is spelled out. Mr. Witham, go. Speaking of spelling, I'm on Twitter at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. If you can't remember any of that stuff, and I know it's difficult, that's why we made it easy for you. We put it all up on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. It's in the About Us section. You want to get all these issues that we're talking about of Wonder Woman? Pretty easy to do. Go to the This Week section while you're listening to Liam talk about how great Wonder Woman is. You scroll down, and you can buy the issues right there in Amazon Digital, all on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, everybody, practice safe comic book reading and always bag and board your comics.